Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Jelena Golubovic, and today I will be talking with Ivan Simic about his very new book, which just came out this year, 2018, from Palgrave Macmillan. The book is called Soviet Influences on Postwar Yugoslav Gender Policies. When communists came to power in Yugoslavia after World War II, they based their new system on the Soviet model. They initially looked towards the Soviet Union as a kind of socialist utopia and that they hoped to achieve in Yugoslavia. But after the split between Tito and Stalin over foreign policy disagreements in 1948, Yugoslav communists had to carve their own path forward. So Ivan Simic's new book looks at this historical moment through the lens of uh, gender policies. He asks, how did the Soviet model influence Yugoslav gender policies after World War II? What were the many challenges of applying these policies in the Yugoslav context? And what happened to Yugoslav gender policies after the Tito-Stalin split? So, Ivan, I hope this was an adequate introduction to your exciting new book. And thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, the first question would I'd like to ask you is just to tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book. Uh, well, I'm uh, currently a postdoc fellow at Carleton University in Ottawa, in Canada. Um, before that, I was briefly at the University of Calgary, and that was after finishing my PhD at University College London in the UK, where I actually did uh, most of the research for this book. And this book actually originates in my PhD thesis that uh, I did during my time in England at uh, UCL and CIS. Uh, so uh, it was a product of, uh, I guess, uh, now around six years of researching and writing so it was a quite long process uh, but in a sense it was also uh, kind of uh, an evolution of my previous projects that i did for my ba and ma thesis so um, namely for my ma thesis i was actually looking at the constructions of masculinity and femininity in uh, early uh, yugoslav socialism and uh, then it actually came to me that uh, a lot of things that were happening immediately after the Second World War in Socialist Yugoslavia were heavily influenced by the Soviet Union. And then I was uh, just uh, going further and further, and that was the starting point for the research. So it was, um, in a sense, uh, an evolution that uh, ended in this book. Great. Um, so just to make sure that the listeners are on the same page uh, sort of going forward, since I've already had the pleasure of reading this book. Um, but we'll be talking a lot about the sort of Soviet model, uh, Soviet gender policies, um, or more particularly Stalinist gender policies for uh, around the time that the Yugoslav communists were coming into power. Um, so could you just explain briefly for the listeners, what were Stalinist gender policies? Okay, so... Um... The thing is that Stalinist gender policies uh, at its core were very complex. And uh, for me and for this particular research, it wasn't really important of what were Stalinist gender policies, either in theory and practice in the Soviet Union, 
but rather how Yugoslav communists perceived Stalinist gender policies, how they learned them during the 1930s, while uh, when the majority of uh, Yugoslav communists, particularly the leadership, were actually educated in the Soviet Union. And um, so that was uh, uh, um, the most important thing of how they perceived Stalinist gender policies. And uh, when I'm talking about Stalinist gender policies and their application in socialist Yugoslavia, I'm talking uh, um, about how they were uh, seen by Yugoslav communists, how they were adopted and then applied in Yugoslav practice. Uh, of course, it is important in a sense of uh, uh, what Stalinist gender policies were in the Soviet Union, but uh, mostly on that uh, um, on the level of uh, public discourses that were uh, that were present in in the Soviet Union during the 1930s. So um, also Stalinist gender policies have received significant attention in uh, historiography. Although recently there is um, a shift in how Stalinist gender policies are perceived, namely um, during the 1980s and early 1990s, uh, for most of the social historians, uh, Stalinist gender policies were seen as kind of a great retreat, meaning that uh, it was... Um, some kind of retreat from more open, more, uh, so to say, liberal uh, gender policies of the Soviet Union in the immediate uh, post-revolutionary period of the 1970 and then during the 1920s. Um, and uh, historians mostly used as the arguments that um, uh, with the ascent of self-Stalinism, there were new family laws, which actually uh, uh, attempt to... Uh, reinforce family structures. Uh, the, for example, divorce became more uh, um, actually harder to obtain in the 1930s than in the 1920s in the Soviet Union. And um, also uh, the way that uh, masculinity and femininity were uh, formulated in public discourse were more, so to say, uh, or at least it was claimed to be uh, more conservative than during the 1920s. Also, for example, abortion was uh, banned again in 1936 in the Soviet Union. So all these things um, actually were used as the arguments that there was indeed a uh, retreat in terms of uh, gender policies in the Soviet Union. However, more recently, a um, few gender historians, uh, for example, Elizabeth Wood and uh, also David Hoffman, but he's not a gender historian, but anyway, uh, they tried to show that... Uh, um, Stalinism as such was uh, not a retreat, and that Stalinist gender policies were uh, certainly different than in the 1920s, but that they were not a retreat uh, either in its intention or in its consequences. They were uh, equally revolutionary, and um, the retreat would mean, uh, for example, returning to the pre-revolutionary state, which certainly was not the intention of uh, Stalinist gender policies. Also, Elizabeth Wood, for example, showed that even during the 1920s and uh, uh, there, uh, then uh, gender policies were considered to be more uh, open and free and liberal, that even then uh, not many uh, Bolshevik leaders were very interested in uh, gender equality and that uh, there were many other concerns that uh, occupied the Bolshevik leadership and that uh, actually... Um, what was promoted in public discourse was uh, equally sharp distinction of what was appropriate femininity and what was appropriate masculinity and uh, so on. So that actually that retreat was not sharp as it was previously claimed. And now we are coming to uh, 
Yugoslav communists, but also other Eastern uh, European revolutionaries who were in Moscow during the 1930s, is that they actually never noticed any retreat in gender policies. And uh, one argument that I'm using is that even after 1948 and uh, after the conflict with the Soviet Union, uh, even then, when uh, Yugoslav communists tried to um, at least rhetorically distance themselves from Stalinism, they never observed that there was a retreat in uh, gender policies during the 1930s. So, um, in a sense, um, Stalinist gender policies that Yugoslav communists adopted were a mixture of uh, what was happening in the Soviet Union during the 1920s and what was happening during the 1930s and uh, how they actually interpreted those gender policies. Yeah. Yeah, I think one one of the good things about your book uh, when you're talking about the Yugoslav case is you don't give this view that, uh, you know, after communism, gender policies were just, you know, better and better and better that it actually was so much of a back and forth and progress was made and then sort of taken away depending on um, these sort of micropolitics happening within the party. Um, but before we go into talking more about what Yugoslav gender policies look like after World War II, could you explain for the listeners what gender policies and gender relations look like in Yugoslavia before World War II or sort of in the interwar period? Uh, yeah, that's... Um Another important thing that uh, uh, no matter how gender policies in the Soviet Union were during the Stalinist period, they were uh, not conservative at all as compared to what was the dominant in uh, interwar Yugoslavia. So, namely, uh, Yugoslavia was formed in 1918 and uh, um, economically it was... Uh, very underdeveloped uh, politically, uh, uh, not politically as well, in terms of, for example, gender policies, women uh, did not have uh, any uh, uh, political, economic, or uh, even social rights. Uh, but also, interwar Yugoslavia was a sort of a legal mess, so to say, because uh, uh, there were uh, no attempts to make uh, uniform legislation for the entire country, meaning that, uh, for example, in Serbian part of Yugoslavia, uh, and in terms of gender relations, that's quite important, uh, the old uh, Serbian civil law from uh, 1844 was uh, still, in, uh, uh, still in use. And according to that law, women were equalized with, uh, legally equalized with uh, minors and without any political social rights, while uh, men were pretty much uh, uh, openly, that's how it was framed, were um, uh, defined to be heads of the family and those who are to decide about pretty much everything regarding women's lives. Uh, in um, other parts of Yugoslavia, there was also uh, all the uh, Austrian civil uh, civil law, which was uh, equally uh, unfavorable to women. Um, for Muslim population, there was Sharia law in power, uh, and uh, only in very small part of uh, northern Yugoslavia, in Vojvodina, there was uh, all Hungarian civil law in power, which is interesting because that's the only one which allowed divorce to exist. So. This entire mess actually meant that uh, 
divorce was uh, super hard to obtain in pretty much the entire country, that interreligious marriages were very rare, and for the entire country, women did not have any political and economic rights. Also, for the vast majority of the country, women also did not have, uh, so to say, educational rights, meaning that many universities and many degrees were close to women, they were not giving them diplomas, and uh, so on. So, pretty much... um, Every uh, single, uh, even if we accept that there was a retreat in uh, studying gender policies, that would still be very progressive and very radical in uh, no matter what form it was applied in uh, Yugoslavia later. Yes, I remember feeling quite shocked when I read some of the some of the laws you mentioned were in place in the interwar period. And I think given how conservative so many of these laws were and given the huge mix, as you mentioned, of which laws were being applied in which parts of Yugoslavia, it makes sense that when the communists came to power and attempted to you know, enforce a sort of unified system, that there was a lot of resistance, uh, not only in the local level, but within the party to many of the gender policies they are putting forward. Um, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the problem of resistance. Maybe we could separate sort of the local uh, level resistance versus the resistance within the party, um, whichever you'd like to address first, I guess. Well, um, Yugoslav communists started changing the society uh, immediately once the Second World War started. So just to uh, introduce the listeners, the Second World War in Yugoslavia started in 1941, and the Yugoslav Communist Party at that time uh, was not really big, but very well organized uh, um, conspiratory organization, which was uh, working underground for previous 20 years because it was outlawed in uh, uh, interwar Yugoslavia. And they were actually quite ready when the Second World War started. They had a very clear idea of what kind of society they wanted to build on the Soviet model. And um, once Yugoslavia was occupied, they were just waiting for the direction from Moscow to start the uh, armed uh, uprising against the occupiers. And that actually happened in June uh, 1941, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union. And immediately after that summer of 1941, Yugoslav communists started to radically change the societies. And already in early 1942, they made this uh, so-called Focha Ordinance, which uh, for the first time um, gave equal political rights to women in the partisan uh, communist units meaning that uh, for the first time uh, Yugoslav women could vote and be elected for uh, um, different posts in the liberated areas. And uh, already then, uh, during the war, uh, Yugoslav communists in the liberated areas started organizing something called the People's Councils, which were, um, which were uh, uh, administrative ruling units in the liberated areas, and uh, they expected women to be elected as well. Uh, and already during the war in uh, 1942 and 1943, uh, we can see that there were uh, 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 resistances, in particularly in very remote areas, for women to be elected into these people's councils. But we can also see that uh, Yugoslav communists have a very proactive stance of uh, uh, criticizing this kind of uh, uh, resistances to uh, women's participation. And um, that was quite important because uh, in the liberated areas, uh, those who were elected in those councils were mostly elderly men 
and BMET. So meaning that uh, they were actually um, challenging, radically challenging uh, old patriarchal structures that existed. So that was at a, a very local level. Um, I mean, in the book, I'm uh, showing that uh, um, there were various levels of uh, resistance to uh, applying the, the Soviet models, be it at a very local level, but also uh, within the levels of the uh, Communist Party. And uh, one important thing, that I, at least I think it's important, is that I show how the uh, very structures of the Communist Party um, um, helped that resistance in the sense that uh, uh, they excluded uh, women from the top levels of the Communist Party and uh, uh, the top levels where the major decisions were made. Uh, so what happened during the war, already 1942, was that uh, Yugoslav communists organized uh, its own uh, women's section called the Anti-Fascist Women's Front, and that um, organization, tightly, clo uh, tightly uh, uh, close to the party, was supposed to organize all Yugoslav women so that uh, they would support war efforts during the war, but also that they would have very strong educational role. And um, what I'm arguing is that first that organization was modeled upon the Soviet Genodel, which was the uh, women's section of the Bolshevik Party in the 1920s. Uh, and I'm also showing that the very fact that uh, from the beginning of the war, Yugoslav communists considered women to be a special case or those who need uh, special attention and those who are not default uh, um, warriors, revolutionaries, and even citizens, but those who actually require to have a separate organization, that by designing something like that, uh, uh, they deliberately channeled uh, women's political activity within such organization, and which seriously impeded uh, their uh, political activities through the party and at the very top levels of the leadership. So there were multiple levels of resistance. This uh, anti-fascist women's front you mentioned, it's such an interesting case. Uh, you also discuss how they were sort of, I mean, they were excluded from the top levels of the party structure, but they were also mandated with taking care of social issues and not uh, more political uh, or foreign policy related issues. What were some of the social issues that they were handling and what kind of changes were they able to actually affect through this organization? So that was um, from the very beginning, I think, um, uh, imagined to be an organization that would help for broader goals of the party. And um, since the party organized the society in a very uh, uh, hierarchical uh I mean, the, the, the system they organized is usually called political monism, in which there was only uh, one political party, and uh, there was uh, also something called People's Front, which was ruled by the Communist Party, and all these mass, so-called mass organizations, including the uh, anti-fascist women's front, were part of that uh, People's Front, uh, meaning that they were uh, pretty much uh, uh, ruled by the party and following all the party's policies. And uh, already when uh, it was clear that the war is coming to an end in uh, uh, 1944 and uh, early 1945, uh, the anti-fascist women front was uh, directed towards more social issues. First, 
of uh, taking care of uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, homeless children and of uh, children of uh, fallen fighters and so on. Uh, they also had a very important role in those first years of uh, uh, just very basic things of uh, trying to organize supplies in the cities, uh, in the countryside, and so on. And later, whenever uh, the party needed uh, some kind of broader support uh, from women, for example, regarding industrialization, regarding the conflict in the Soviet Union or collectivization of the countryside, they would call the Anti-Fascist Women Front to work with uh, women and to ensure that the party is supported amongst the women. Uh, so, um, and that was also one of the reasons why uh, um, why I think, at least, that uh, uh, the Anti-Fascist Women Front contributed to that exclusion of uh, women from uh, from uh, 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 political decision making. Of course, the other reason was that uh, I'm not really sure that there was ever uh, any um, um, how to put it uh, any desire by the top levels of uh, Yugoslav Communist Party's leadership to include more women into the forums where uh, the real uh, political and economic decisions were made. And uh, since it was a very hierarchical structure leading to Josip Broz Tito at the very top, it was uh, Josip Broz Tito and his closest uh, uh, closest mates who were uh, um, Rankovic, Carter and Gilas, and then leading to the polit- Politburo of the Communist Party, and there were no women in the Politburo, Politburo of the Communist Party, and then uh, leading to the Central Committee of the Communist Party, and they're just going down through the structures. Uh, so, um, and in these structures, there were a very limited number of women. Uh, for example, in the Central Committee after the war, there were only two women who were admitted in 1940, with the Tomšičić, Vasenija Babović, and even they were often um, forced to work on the so-called women's issues. Uh, and with the Tom, first Vasenija Babović, then with the Tomšić, were both presidents of this uh, anti-fascist women's front. So, um, and it might be good to clarify here. You discuss in your book that I mean the anti-fascist women's front, even though it was charged with uh, women's issues and with you know, the emancipation of women in society and so forth. Um, it really couldn't be called a feminist organization. And you you discussed some sort of internal debates between uh, women, some who were taking a feminist stance, others who were um, sticking to sort of the party line. Uh, could you clarify a bit uh, sort of the difference between a feminist organization and a communist gender organization? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the... the uh the organization was super important to so many women, and it was huge. Uh, at some point, it had more than one million women in its ranks. Uh, it had offices in uh, very remote areas, in uh, very uh, uh, rural villages, and uh, the organization provided very valuable support to women who wanted to be uh, part of the uh, new socialist uh, regime and who wanted to show that they are good communists and so on. And the organization actually had uh, many campaigns which were very valuable for valuable for uh, so many people, including uh, anti-literacy campaigns and uh, so on. Uh, but there was this discussion uh, more recently, actually, which I consider to be quite anachronistic, 
we tried to show that the anti-fascist women front was uh, some sort of uh, feminist organization. Um, well, my argument is that uh, the organization itself was modeled upon the Soviet Genodel and that for the leaders of the AFG, which is the acronym of the organization, uh, that for the leaders of the, of the organization being uh, called a feminist would be very insulting in the first place. Uh, that is that old uh, division between Bolsheviks and feminists since the 90 since the beginning of the 20th century, pretty much. And already uh, during the 1930s, it was uh, very clear in uh, Yugoslavia as well. Um, there were discussions uh, within the AFG about feminism and actually being accused of being a feminist within the organization would be quite serious offense. Um, now, the goals that, uh, let's say, pre-Second World War feminist organizations in Yugoslavia had were quite similar with uh, some of the goals of the anti-fascist women front, namely uh, they, uh, uh, they all advocated for women's political and economic rights. Um, pre-war feminist organizations also organized uh, many campaigns directed at peasant women uh, regarding literacy or health campaigns and so on. By the, but the major difference was that uh, uh, leading Yugoslav communist women, who were uh, also leading Yafeje, uh, were uh, seeing the solutions to these questions solely on the Soviet model. And that could not uh, uh, include any form of uh, feminism, basically on ideological reasons. Uh, for example, Vida Tomšić, who was uh, one of the most important Yugoslav women of the uh, 1940s and 1950s, uh, always claimed that, uh, and that was the old argument, always claimed that feminism actually separates women from the working class and that that has uh, no place in uh, Yugoslav socialism. Um, I also argued that uh, such stances, which were uh, quite uh, negative towards uh, even the very word feminism, had marks in um, uh, socialist Yugoslavia up until uh, late 1970s that this whole generation of communist women, Vida Tomšić, Pasenia Balovic, they could not relate to uh, uh, what was happening, for example, in uh, Western Europe in the 1970s, and that only a new generation of uh, Yugoslav women who had nothing to do with the AFG, um organized themselves mostly in Zagreb and Ljubljana and Belgrade in the late 1970s to start a new feminist movement. But that new feminist movement had nothing to do uh, with uh, uh, the period that I'm talking about, and there was a quite sharp contrast in uh, how they saw each other. So I think that this uh, uh, entire, uh, uh, that th these attempts to connect uh, um, Afege with uh, later, uh, um, late Yugoslav or post-Yugoslav feminisms were uh, uh, kind of uh, useful, maybe for contemporary feminist circles, but they uh, they are quite uh, ahistorical. Mm -hmm. And this, this argument that feminism separates women from the working class. It's interesting because this is the type of argument that was used to shut down the organization, correct? Uh, the anti-fascist women? Uh, that's correct. I mean, the very existence of the AFG uh, was uh, um, contested from the very beginning since uh, um, already during the 1943, there was a debate of why uh, 
did uh, in the communist units there were debates of why they have a separate women's organization while uh, women are equal in the partisan unit and they're going to be equal in a new socialist uh, country um, the same uh, 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 ideological reasons were always uh, there after the second world war and the discussions why do we need a separate women's organization uh, one uh, argument for having it was uh, also that uh, uh, on the levels of something that they quite used often, which was called socialist consciousness, women were always lagging behind men. And that since women were uh, so backward, and particularly peasant women and so on, that there is a need for a separate women's organization who will work with these women so that they will catch up with men on uh, that imagined hierarchy of uh, uh, socialist consciousness. And then once the socialism is fully built, there will be no need for uh, having a separate female organization. Uh, now, th- these were all... Um, these were all ideological arguments, and they were actually used in 1953 when uh, the AFG was uh, uh, dismantled. Uh, namely, Milovan Zilas said that the AFG Congress said that uh, there is no need for separate female organization, that they should work together on political issues, uh, that uh, they can organize the decentralized female societies to work on uh, specific issues, for example, regarding children and social care and so on. But on political levels, there is no need for a separate female organization. And it's quite interesting because Lazar Kaganovich from the Soviet Union used completely the same arguments in 1930 when they uh, uh, dismantled Janodel in the Soviet Union. So the ideological reasons were quite important. But they also argued that the AFG um, uh, created uh, many enemies, uh, particularly among the lower uh, rank and file men and communist men with uh, um, their own activities and uh, particularly when they attempt to challenge at the local level uh, all patriarchal uh, uh, hierarchies that uh, that also contributed that the affege was not very uh, uh, popular amongst men as well so um, yeah i guess it makes sense I'm happy you brought up these uh, uh, hierarchies in the socialist imagination. I do have a question about that I'd like to ask you in a minute. But first, I wanted to ask you about um, motherhood and sort of the the role of women as mothers in socialist ideology. Because um, as you mentioned, during World War II, women fought in the partisan movement. Um, after the war, they were they were physically called on to rebuild destroyed infrastructure. Um, they moved into industry jobs after the war uh, that had previously been closed to them or just been considered male realms. So communism gave a lot of new uh, new roles for women. But soon after the war, the, the role of women as mothers began to be emphasized again. And this uh, some of the jobs that had become open to them then became closed to them. So I'd love if you could elaborate on sort of this tension between the roles that women were assigned. I think that uh, the issue of motherhood was quite important even during the war. Uh, it is true, and it's um, quite an interesting phenomenon that uh, so many women participated in armed struggles of uh, the Yugoslav partisans, and uh, many of them... Uh, uh, actually were in combats and earning uh, officer ranks and medals and so on. But already during the war in uh, 1944, uh, if you read uh, uh, 
um, publications, for example, uh, particularly directed at women, we can see that they often wrote about uh, the Soviet Union and what the Soviet Union was doing for uh, the protection of mothers and children and motherhood in general. Um, there were articles, uh, for example, that uh, motherhood is the backbone of the Soviet Union and uh, so on. So uh, I cannot say that they ever put the issue of uh, motherhood on the side. I think that uh, uh, first of all, for Yugoslav partisans and for Yugoslav communists, it was uh, naturalized and normal that uh, uh, women had that um, how they saw it, the biological role of being mothers. And already in 1945, we can uh, uh, see from uh, Josip Broz Tito's speeches that uh, motherhood would be quite important uh, uh, on the, uh, uh, and that it should be quite important and high on the priorities of the uh, women's, uh, of the party's women's section. And that um, motherhood was on equal footing with the reconstruction of the country and uh, so on. Uh, so that is another thing that I'm bringing in the book, that it's uh, that there was no, uh, so to put it, re-traditionalization of uh, 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 Yugoslav communists after the uh, split with the Soviet Union and uh, uh, with the Yugoslav self-management. On the contrary, that motherhood was always uh, placed quite high on by a communist man, namely by Josip Broz Tito, and that uh, he was often the one who was deciding on uh, what kind of gender role and to what extent uh, Yugoslav women can and are, out and are allowed to challenge existing uh, uh, gender hierarchies. So the issue of motherhood was there from the very beginning. Also, if you look at the Yugoslav constitution of 1946, um, it was uh, heavily modeled on the Soviet constitution of 1936, and uh, many articles that uh, uh, concerned that uh, motherhood and protections of mothers and children were direct Soviet translations. And so the new thing was that the state, in this case, uh, guaranteed protection of mothers and children, so putting it uh, very high at the uh, uh, state priorities. And also, it's um, the, that uh, uh, very basic premise then informed how, for example, labor laws were uh, formulated. Uh, it also informed of how the uh, demon section approached qualification, for example. It also informed how uh, they approached youth sexuality and uh, how they saw sexuality in general. And uh, so the. Um, the way uh, that uh, uh, motherhood and fatherhood was actually very rarely mentioned. So it was uh, mostly about uh, motherhood and the new generation of Yugoslav communists, which was a duty of women and not really of men. Yeah, you, you make a great point in your book that in this way, the state sort of seemed to use women in this opportunistic way where when they needed hard labor done, they would ask women to step forward and do the hard labor. And then later when they needed, you know, more attention towards, or I guess they never stopped needing attention towards, but when it became re-emphasized, uh, the importance of child rearing and so on and so forth. You no, know, the country was heavily devastated during the Second World War. Uh, apart from uh, Poland and Germany, but uh, 
or out of allied countries. I don't think, and the Soviet Union, I don't think that any country was so devastated. And the party uh, engaged in rapid reconstruction first, and then in 1947, they launched very, very uh, optimistic industrialization project based on the Soviet model. And they assumed that they would need uh, every single uh, uh, capable worker to uh, be very engaged in uh, industrialization. And since they uh, pretty much lacked uh, um, any mechanization for that, they uh, had to rely on crude workforce. So uh, they also assumed that uh, they would that, that there would be a shortage of uh, male workforce and that they had to engage and uh, bring more women into industry. And uh, that actually opened many, many possibilities for women in 1946 and 1947 and uh, 1948 as well during this uh, period of rapid industrialization, many women found employment in uh, jobs that were previously, particularly in the interwar Yugoslavia, completely unimaginable that uh, women would work there. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and also industrial schools had to open places for uh, uh, female youth and so on. Uh, but at the same time, as you mentioned, uh, there was always this thing that uh, um, women were supposed to be mothers as well, besides being workers. And even in during this industrialization push, we can read from the internal reports that uh, uh, the party cells and the uh, party organizers were supposed to pay more attention to uh, what women are doing in these jobs, or how is their accommodation, and so on. Much more attention than what was paid to men meaning that uh, they saw women as uh, first more expensive and uh, uh, kind of different workforce than men. And then when the economy, uh, after, the, uh, after the conflict with the Soviet Union and the blockade from the East and the economy kind of uh, 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 contracted, women were the first to lose jobs. And then we can actually see how these patriarchal stances were not really challenged and uh, local levels, so for example, for the local unions, where many union leaders actually saw it normal that uh, married women should be fired first if there is uh, uh, if there are too many people employed in the factory, and then other women, and only at the end that men could lose their jobs. It's probably a good moment to come back to this idea of the, um, the sort of symbolic hierarchy uh, that the communists had. And it's quite a complicated one. I mean, between, on the one hand, men and women, between peasants and urbanites, and between uh, the religious Muslim population and everybody else. So you sort of describe that in this hierarchy, the peasants were low, female peasants were even lower, and uh, Muslim female peasants were the lowest. And uh, there's one chapter in your book devoted to a very contentious veil lifting campaign that the Yugoslav leadership implemented as part of their uh, campaign to spread socialism and strengthen socialism in the countryside. Um, so I'd love if you could discuss a little bit uh, the, the banning of the veil and why this was important for the communists and then how it was received by the Muslim communities for which the veil was an important religious practice. Okay, so first regarding the hierarchies, uh, the Communist Party saw itself as the vanguard of the working class, whose duty is to lead all other forward to socialism and communism. So they are at the top of that hierarchy. Uh, after that, of course, there was this gender hierarchy between uh, 
men and women. There was also a hierarchy of places, meaning that uh, no matter what was happening in the cities, they were always assumed and considered to be more advanced to that countryside. And there was also that class hierarchy that uh, uh, workers are more advanced than peasants. And when we put all these together, we can see that the male workers were at the top of that hierarchy and female peasants were at the bottom. Now, there was also a sort of a religious hierarchy, uh, namely which uh, saw that Muslim women were uh, uh, the most uh, backward group in the country. And I mean, when I'm talking about this advanced and backward, I'm always talking uh, the way the communists saw them. Uh, so they saw Muslim women to be uh, uh, humiliated by uh, all traditions. They saw Muslim women to be the most exploited group in the country who were not only exploited by uh, the fact that they were uh, uh, living in a very underdeveloped countryside, but that they were also exploited by very patriarchal religious practices. At least that's how uh, Yugoslav communists saw them. Another issue was that um, uh, I think that Yugoslav communists did not have uh, uh, much contact with Muslim women themselves. I think that uh, the communities were quite close to them. And uh, there was this uh, uh, strong desire that the vanguard of the working class meaning the Communist Party, should lead the entire society forward and that no group was to be left behind. That also applied to Muslim women. Another problem with uh, uh, Muslim communities was that uh, many, not all, but many uh, Muslim women in uh, Yugoslavia wore the veils, which in Yugoslav case was mostly uh, full face and body covering. that was something that was not really acceptable to Yugoslav communists. And they also read about, um, and we can also see in their uh, translations of Soviet documents, they read about tremendous successes that uh, supposedly the Soviet Union had in Central Asia about uh, unveiling of Muslim women there, who were then given the opportunity to be parts of the socialist projects and then who made really fruitful careers and so on. And since Yugoslav communists were never in any case less ambitious than their Soviet mentors, they uh, pretty much expected the same to happen in socialist Yugoslavia. Now, um, Yugoslav communists started first on daily attempts already in 1946 and 1947, but from the internal reports, we can see that these attempts were very unsuccessful, that uh, not many Muslim women wanted to unveil, that many would veil again as soon as the activists leave the villages, and so on. Um, now, regarding the Islamic community in Yugoslavia, which is uh, quite specific because there was uh, this uh, quite organized structure which was supposed to uh, be equivalent to, let's say, the structures of uh, Serbian Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church and so on, the Islamic community in Yugoslavia was led by Reisul Ulema, and that was uh, re-established in 1947. And interestingly, the Islamic community of Yugoslavia had quite good relationships with the party. And there were several reasons for that. First, 
uh, they, uh, the Islamic community was no longer discriminated to a uh, more dominant Serbian Orthodox Church or to the Catholic Church. Second reason was that uh, Yugoslav Communist Party provided uh, quite significant monetary donations to the Islamic community in return for support, and they also installed their own communists in many of the posts. And finally, uh, there was another thing that should be mentioned, is that there was a very strong, of how they saw it, a modernist tradition within the Islamic community of Yugoslavia. Already in the 1920s, there were many debates within the Islamic community about unveiling of Muslim women, with uh, Reis Ulema Ceausevic, who strongly supported unveiling of Muslim women. Uh, not men, not uh, not much was done on that uh, in the interwar period, but uh, it's important to see that there was uh, uh, the evolution and there was support for unveiling within the Muslim community. After the Second World War, Reisul Lema was Ibrahim uh, Efendi uh, Feij, who was also in favor of unveiling. And the Communist Party uh, used that uh, uh, extensively, making sure that his views were seen. But even that didn't really ensure that uh, unveiling was uh, really happening in practice. So what Yugoslav communists did was to ban wearing the veils. Now, that is quite different than the Soviet Union because uh, uh, the Soviets never really uh, banned the veils. There were attempts in the Soviet Union in the 1920s with Kudrum and maybe in 1937 to... Uh, uh, um, pretty much removed the veils from the public space, but they were never banned. Yugoslav communists so went a step further, and in 1950, they banned wearing the veils, um, and it was uh, so done by the law, meaning that uh, not only women who wore the veil could be punished, but also men who, by any uh, mean, put any pressure on women to uh, uh, wear the veil. That also gave the activists a very powerful tool to uh, launch very aggressive veiling campaign that happened in, all over Yugoslavia in 1950. And uh, in a very short period, veils uh, disappeared from public space in Yugoslavia. Initially, it created huge problems as well because uh, many women locked themselves in the houses. Uh, once again, Yugoslav communists interpreted that that it was actually Muslim men who were uh, not allowing women to go uh, uh, outside and so on. But actually, when we read internal reports, we can see that uh, um, that uh, many women actually didn't have anything to wear after unveiling, that many women were just uh, very ashamed to show up on the street unveiled and so on. Um, and that it wasn't only uh, due to the men's pressure as it was uh, uh, publicized by Yugoslav communists. But anyway, the result of that unveiling campaign was that uh, veils pretty much disappeared from uh, uh, Yugoslav countryside and also from uh, uh, Yugoslav cities, and that Muslim women uh, kind of adapted to the situation, now wearing scarves and so on. So, yeah, that, that was um, a quite important step for... Uh, at least in uh, my interpretation for Yugoslav communists, for um, state-building purposes, that it allowed the party to intervene into the communities that were previously close to them, um, and then using uh, uh, gender relations uh, pretty much as a pretext for uh, broader interventions into these communities. Thank you so much for that overview. Um, 
feel like we've taken a lot of your time. So I only want to ask you another question, departing sort of from this book, which is what are you working on now? What are some future projects coming up for you? Well, uh, I'm expanding on this entire unveiling uh, uh, issue. Um, that is part of my postdoc now at Carlton. I'm looking at the uh, Bulgarian case as well um, and comparing Yugoslav and Bulgarian case uh, and also returning to the uh, Soviet Union, trying to see um, more direct connections with the Soviet case in Central Asia because now it seems to me that uh, Moscow was really a hub for both Yugoslav and uh, Bulgarian revolutionaries, and uh, that they uh, didn't really know what was happening in Central Asia, but that they had some uh, some ideas of how the society should be organized and how policies toward the Muslim communities uh, should uh, should be. So um, that is the the big project that I'm doing now. Um, there are also some smaller projects um, that were uh, kind of uh, uh, left uh, from my book. One of them is looking uh, more at other religious communities and how gender uh, policies of Yugoslav communists challenge other religious communities, namely the Catholic Church and Serbian Orthodox Church, and how uh, uh, clergy try to counter uh, uh, communist policies at a very local level um, and how they try to uh, also negotiate uh, gender policies that were uh, enforced to them and to adapt to the situation. And the third project also uh, deriving from that uh, is on uh, how uh, Yugoslav approaches towards prostitution and um, particularly in the first uh, uh, few years after the Second World War, informed how prostitution was seen during the entire socialist period. Wow, all three of those projects sound uh, fascinating. You must be very, very busy at the moment then. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> but I really look forward to, to reading this future work that you're going to put out. And thanks again so much for, for being on the show. Thank you very much. That was Ivan Simic talking to us about his book, Soviet Influences on Post-War Yugoslav Gender Policies, which came out this year, 2018, from Palgrave Macmillan. Thank you for listening. <laughs>